Hallelujah. So like I said, we're going to go ahead and get started in the second half of chapter one. And last week, if you remember, we went ahead and finished at the ascension of Christ. And this really was the, the mark of the end of his ministry here on earth. But when this happened, what it meant was is that even though Jesus' ministry, where he was physically embodied here on earth, had ended, now the mantle had been passed on to the disciples, because this is really where their ministry begins to take off. It's the beginning of their ministry on his behalf. Have you ever heard that expression? Uh, not expression, but you heard the verse, and uh, I believe Paul said it. He says that, that he is staying here to make up what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice. You remember that verse? Such an odd verse, because Christ's sacrifice was enough. There was nothing lacking. You want to know what was lacking? This part here. Somebody had to go share the gospel. That's what Jesus didn't do. He left that to us. And that's what's happening here. This ministry is being passed on to them. And they were just instructed to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that, right? There, there was the receiving of the Holy Spirit when he breathed on them. That was salvation. But now we have this event that's coming where the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And this is where Jesus said he couldn't send the helper until he, he left. So that's what they're waiting for. They've been given instructions to head back to Jerusalem and hang out for a bit. So they headed him back up to the upper room waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they just spend time in prayer waiting for his arrival. But Peter steps up, right, and he's stepping into that role. Like I said, he was, he was already a leader amongst the disciples when he was walking with Jesus, and now he's, he's just continuing in that role. And, and, and they recognize that there is, is a, that there is a need to choose another disciple, and we'll go in and talk about why here in a little while. A while. But uh, the position that, that Judas had vacated needed to be filled. And that's what we're going to talk about today is, is that filling of that position because the, the 12 apostles were actually symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's hard to represent 12 tribes of Israel if there's only 11 of you. Amen. So let's go ahead and, and get started today. In Acts 1, 12 through 13, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. This is not Judas Iscariot. This is the second Judas, um, but they're all up in the upper room. And as we mentioned in the intro, um, the disciples are returning to Jerusalem, right? They've been given instructions to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And they were out at Mount Olivet when Jesus had ascended. So now they got to make their way back. And it turns out Mount Olivet's not really that far away. That's why you see this phrase, a Sabbath day's journey away. Anybody know what a Sabbath day's journey is? Oh, well, I was going to have you come up and teach it, but I guess I will now then. It's an interesting phrase. It actually doesn't really have anything to do with the Sabbath day, at least as far as it doesn't mean that you're traveling on that day. It's not like they had to wait till Sabbath time to make this trip back to Jerusalem. Um, but it's actually a unit of measurement. It's kind of an expression that they would use back in those times. So as you guys know, the, the way this expression came about is, is, as you know, on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to do any work right? No work on the Sabbath. Um, and if you walked too far, 
there was a threshold that you hit where walking a little bit was okay, but if you walk too far, now it becomes work. So there was actually this, this short amount of walking that was allowed on the Sabbath. And this Sabbath day's walk was an expression of that. It's, it's, basically when, it's basically saying it was just down the road. It wasn't that far away. They were just saying it was about the distance that you're allowed to walk on a Sabbath. In other words, it was just a short distance on foot. And different commentaries and historians I was reading about it is probably somewhere between half a mile to a mile, somewhere around there. At most, it was this Mount Olive. It was a mile away from where they were staying in Jerusalem. And then once they get to Jerusalem, they head to the upper room. And this is likely the same upper room that they met with Jesus and, and had um, the, the, the Last Supper. What did they go? Oh, Passover. Thank you. I think I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm having a hard time remembering words lately. My brain just goes blank. Hallelujah. But uh, yeah, this is the, the same room that they celebrated Passover with Jesus. And uh, the way they talk about it, actually, they, they think that this, this upper room that we're talking about is not just the, uh, you know, some random upper room where they were staying, but it, it may have been more well known because every time they talk about it, it's not like they went to an upper room or where they were staying. It's always referred to as the upper room. Like it's, it's almost like a, a, uh, uh, an actual name for that's just what everybody knew it as As a matter of fact the greek uh, writing uses the definite article when referring to it so it seems that this upper room was well known and this is where the disciples are still meeting and like we said probably where they met with jesus and it's interesting that when when they would have these meetings typically the larger rooms would be upstairs because your lower rooms were much smaller because you needed the walls to support the weight of the second floor. So they had these large meeting rooms upstairs, and that's where they're, they're heading. And at this time, all 11 remaining disciples went up there to wait, to spend time in prayer. If you think about it, this is the first service of the early church that ever happened. They get together to meet and wait. And then in Acts 1.14, it says, all these with one accord, this is, did you guys know that all the, the disciples drove Hondas? Yeah, they were all in one accord. So all these, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Luke actually takes the time to show that it wasn't just the 11 disciples meeting in that upper room. He took great care to say that they were joined by Mary, Jesus' mother, as well as several other women, and then Jesus' brothers as well. And this is actually pretty significant, and I think we can learn a lot from it, because early in Jesus' ministries, his family, particularly his brothers, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Actually, it was worse than that. They all thought he was crazy. Mark 3, 21 says, and when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. But now we see something completely different. After the resurrection, everything has changed. It seems that they 
changed his, their minds, and they were convinced that, that Jesus was who he says he is. So they went from, from not believing in him and, and going so far as to think he was crazy to now they were in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit at his command because they believed. They were convinced now. After the resurrection, they saw the truth. And I think for us today, this is especially strong evidence for the resurrection for us today. One of the things we were talking about in prayer this morning is, or before prayer this morning, is is uh, talking about kids going off to college and then just being destroyed by the viewpoints that are in the college. And unfortunately, I think George was sharing with me this morning, like 37% of all college professors are are. are professed atheists at this point and when our, our our kids get to college if they're not prepared they're going to be hearing arguments for why christianity and religion is false that god's not real and all these things and i think personally as parents myself included um, we did a poor job teaching our kids that there's evidence for the for the scriptures, there's evidence that the resurrection happened. There's, there's evidence that that God is real. I mean, there there is there is physical and scientific and uh, eyewitness evidence for all of these things. But we do a, a better job of teaching our kids the scripture and what it says. But when they get there, they're confronted with all this opposition, and they're not equipped to handle it. So they they fall away. So I think when we're looking at the scriptures, it's important that we notice these areas where it gives great evidence for the trustworthiness of the account of the resurrection. And I think this is one of them. This is especially strong evidence for the resurrection is that Jesus's brothers, his family, went from not believing in him and thinking he was crazy all the way to being convinced and standing with. As a matter of fact, one of the books in the Bible, the, the book of James is written by Jesus's brother. He used to think he was crazy. Now he's a strong supporter. So imagine this. How many of you guys have brothers and sisters? I think everybody here can probably relate to this. What if one day your brother or your sister says, I'm the Messiah? Could you imagine how you would think about that? Right? For, for, for a sibling, this would be incredibly difficult to accept. And not just because of the, you know, the first thing is like, oh man, they, they would be so jealous or maybe they would, they, they would have a problem with it for that reason, you know, that he was my brother and now he's way above me. Not even for that issue would it be hard for the siblings. I imagine that it's hard to learn that your brother is now your eternal king. Right? And, and here's why. They knew Jesus personally. They grew up with Jesus, right? They knew his past. They knew where he came from. They watched him grow up. You know, they watched him fall and skin his knee. They probably watched mom clean up after him. He probably left his Legos all over the floor when he should have cleaned his room. They, they saw all these things. They, they knew Jesus. They grew up with him. Right? You have to understand, our knowledge of Jesus comes from just what the Bible says. And our knowledge comes from a perspective that he already is, the risen king, that he already is our savior. They grew up with him. They were, he was just their, 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 his brother. 
so imagine someone that you knew so well all of a sudden wasn't who you thought he was going to be. And not only that, was he not who they thought he was, but he was their savior. I think it would be quite difficult to accept that as reality, accept that as truth. And that's why I think it's such great evidence for us because they knew him. They knew who he was. Initially, they rejected him. But then when confronted with the truth, they changed their mind and served him. That is incredible evidence for the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of the resurrection. Because why would they make that change if they didn't see something that proved to them that he was, in fact, who he said he was? Amen. But as, as Luke continues on, really the, the, the point is not so much about uh, who is there, but what they were doing. Jesus had just given them a task. He says, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for power to come upon you. So what did they do in the meantime? They didn't go their own way. They didn't just start doing whatever they want. They went to this upper room and they began praying as they were waiting. And we see that there's going to be two things. One, they're going to, they're going to elect another uh, member to fulfill Judas's spot. And then they're going to pray. So when, when, when they were waiting for the timing of what God had told them was going to happen, they did two things. They prayed and went about God's business. That's something that we should be doing. We, we see in, in here, and, and it's not just the apostles either, right? This is everybody shows up. Matter of fact, in a couple moments, we're going to find out there's 120 people in this room. So we have all the, the 11 apostles, and we have uh, 119 or 109 more disciples in this room. And they're coming together to pray. I think this is something that we can learn from because we should be following the example of the early church, the early disciples, the early apostles. They came together and prayed. The importance of prayer cannot be stressed enough. Jesus did it regularly. How many know if Jesus needs to pray? You got quite an ego if you think you don't. Amen. The disciples got together and prayed regularly. And, and they didn't just pray alone, right? That's the, the one thing that, that people, oh, I, I, I pray on my own, Pastor Wayne. I pray, pray on my own time. But they didn't just pray alone. They came together and prayed together as well. And I have to, if I'm being honest with you guys, one of the biggest things and one of the most disheartening things for me is how few of you are in the prayer room on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you only have to be here one hour earlier than you get here regularly. And it's only for half an hour. The truth is every single one of us should be in that room praying together. The early church did it. They got together and they prayed. And, you know, I try to encourage, I try to share the importance of prayer, and, and I don't know what else to do. I just hope that you guys would find it in your heart to recognize the importance of it. And show up one hour earlier on Sundays so that we can pray together. We can stand together for one another, for this church, for our community, for our country. 
and just be in agreement. Amen. It's what the early church did. If it was good enough for them, I think it's good enough for us. Amen. The disciples were setting the example for us by devoting, devoting themselves to prayer. I think we can make the sacrifice once a week to come in early. Amen. All right, enough beating you guys up. Let's go to the next part. Hallelujah. In Acts 1, 15 through 17, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this must have been some room to have 120 people in it. Just to, to, uh, uh, to tell you what the city says is allowed in our little church building here. What's that say up there? Is it 126? Or is it, oh, it's over here. I'm looking at the wrong one. That's our certificate of occupancy. Hallelujah. 126 people is what the, uh, the city says we can fit in this whole building. Like that's including the back rooms, the bathroom, the closets. That's how many people... This is a pretty big room that they're all meeting in. And they're having their first church service. They're praying. And, and 120 people are there. Now, we know this isn't every follower of Jesus because we know that Jesus appeared to 500-plus disciples at one point. So this isn't all the, all the believers, but this is a, a good chunk of them, a good group of them are meeting in this room. And then Peter stands up to address them. And like I said, he's starting to take that prominent role in the early church. He was, he was one of the, uh, the prominent apostles in the early church. It could probably be argued that uh, he was the leader of the apostles. And it's not so different than what he did when the disciples were around with Jesus either. Right? He's pretty prominent in, in the stories when Jesus is walking with them as well. But he stands up and he begins declaring to them the requirements for the scripture to be fulfilled. Fulfillment of scripture is another great body of evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah. It gives evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible because we see prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus himself fulfilled some 300 prophecies. And they were written across a thousand years. The final book of the Old Testament was written in 450 B.C., about 450 years before Jesus was born. All these 300 or so prophecies were written before then. And he fulfilled them all. Now, you say, well, how can that be evidence? Really, I think just one prophecy being fulfilled is pretty interesting. I think that, that shows that God is, is speaking you know, when we see that happen, when, when somebody demonstrates that they know what's going to happen in the future, that's pretty amazing, right? But let me give you the mathematical probability of someone fulfilling that. One person fulfilling eight prophecies in, from the Old Testament, the mathematical probability is one in one to the 17th power, 17 zeros, or one in 10 to the 17th power, 17 zeros. I wrote it all out like I was going to tell you what that number was, but I don't know how to say that number. It's a one with 17 zeros behind it. That's just to fulfill eight. For one person to fulfill 48 prophecies, that's one chance in 10 
to the 157th power. 157 zeros. And what I was reading, it says this. One person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies, only Jesus. It's, an, it's, it's a mathematical and statistical impossibility. But Jesus did it. The, the evidence for that proving that Jesus is who he says he was, because it, it's, it's almost impossible for that to happen. It's, when I say almost too, I don't mean almost like in, in like, um, usually not, but it could kind of happen. The statistical probability is that it is impossible for this to happen, but Jesus did it. This gives great evidence that Jesus is who he says he was and that God was in it because he spoke these things the, the writers wrote these things down under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you know, over a thousand years, a period of, of a thousand or so years, which the, that period was almost 500 years before Jesus. And, they, and, and the Holy Spirit predicted these things would happen, and Jesus fulfilled them. It shows that God was in it, and it shows that our confidence is well-placed. Amen. Now, the scripture that Peter is talking about that needed to be fulfilled were actually concerning Judas. They were spoken by David under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in the next verses we get to, he'll actually uh, quote it. And as crazy as it is, it seems to be that the one, as crazy as it is to seem that, that anyone would betray Jesus, right? It's always easy for us to think stuff like this because we weren't there. We weren't in the mix. We don't know what was happening. But we're like, man, I can't believe somebody was dumb enough to betray Jesus. But Judas did. And uh, he walked beside Jesus and ministered with them for several years. It says, listen, he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And he wasn't forced to do it he made his own decision but God knew that he would and he recorded it hundreds of years before it actually happened God knew it would happen and you guys understand the difference right God knowing something is going to happen is not the same as God making it happen Judas was not forced into this position he made the decision himself he chose to do what he was going to do God just knew he was going to do it before he did it and the crazy thing is, is that Jesus even knew he was going to do it. Jesus said, said that I'm the one that chose you, but I picked one of you who's the devil. He knew who was going to betray him, but he chose him anyway. Because the scripture had to be fulfilled. Amen. And then we read verses 18 through 20, and it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." This is the scriptures that Peter is referring to that must be fulfilled. Um, one of the things that I, I was learning as I was studying this, the stuff in parentheses here and here, and also I think in this section here and here, um, these are kind of like the the footnotes that, that Luke is adding to help us understand what's going on. So this isn't probably something that Peter said. This was something that Luke added to help us understand the context of what 
Peter spoke that morning. And it says that uh, um, basically, if you know what happened, after Judas had betrayed Jesus, he changed his mind. He actually recognizes that he sins. And then he brought the money back to the, to the chief priests and he threw it to them and said, take it back. But what's interesting is, is that he recognizes that he sins. He understands that he did wrong, but he doesn't actually repent. He just goes and commits suicide. And if you know the story, he went and, and heads out to this field and he hangs himself. That's what uh, in Matthew, I believe it describes that he hangs himself. And the depiction here is actually a little bit different. I don't know if you noticed that. In Matthew, he hangs himself. Here, he falls headlong, bursts open, and all his bowels gushed out. A little bit of a different picture. Um, many people will say, look, it just proves the Bible contradicts itself. They'll say, look, it's not consistent. They're just making stuff up. But here's the thing. There are actually a couple of legitimate explanations for why what is written is different. One could be that after he hung himself, he became swollen and, and his stomach dissented, and finally he, he burst, depending on how long he was left there, and his bowels would have burst out all over the, all over the ground. That's one possible explanation. Another one is, and this is actually the one that uh, uh, Augustine held this view, was that um, he hung himself either high enough or over a cliff's edge, and he hung himself and he died, but eventually the rope broke and he fell headlong and smashed against the ground, and hence the uh, bowels gushing out everywhere. But the, the point that I bring this up is, is that there are plausible explanations for what at first might seem like a contradiction. Another one that people will say is, you remember the, uh, the uh, demoniac that was in the graveyard? In one account, it says there was just one, and another account that says there was two. So look, it's a contradiction. Or maybe one account just talked about the prominent one, even though there was two. You know, if, if, if I said, Joseph was in church today, and then Blake said, Joseph and Brenda and Rebecca were in church today. Or what if what if I said Joseph was in a church today and Blake said that only Blake said Brenda and Rebecca were in church today? And you go, see, that's a contradiction. One said Joseph was there, and the other one says that Brenda and Rebecca were there. It's not a contradiction. Both can be true at the same time, right? That's what happens so many times in these stories is that is there's not a contradiction. There's just plausible explanations. In this case, it looks like that he hung himself and then probably fell from where he was hung and, and smashed himself on the ground after that happened when the rope broke. My point is, is to be very careful when, when you know, that's what happens. Kids go to college and they say, see, it contradicts. And, and we've never taught them some of these simple things. To show why that that this actually not an issue. These are real people sharing what happened. If if you wrote every single detail to a T, we this this we would ne- we'd have a book so big we could never read it. But like I said, the point is there's a plausible explanation. In this case, both depictions likely give us a bigger understanding of the whole story. Amen. 
So then it says that this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And this is talking about Judas. And uh, uh, while Judas didn't actually buy the field himself, kind of in a roundabout way he did. Right. So he actually took the money, the 30 pieces of silver, went back to the chief priests and threw it at their feet and said, I don't want it. He goes out and hangs himself. And the chief priests are like, this is blood money. Apparently, like it's not it's it's not too bad to, to spend blood money only to accept that money back into the into the church coffers. That apparently crosses the line. So uh, they say, we can't take this. We'll, we'll just go and buy that field he killed himself on. <laughs> so the money that was actually Judas's was used to purchase the field, which is likely what he said here. He, he acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness. And then finally, Peter quotes the scriptures that were f- to be fulfilled, what he's been talking about here. And and these scriptures were spoken by David under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the first one is six, Psalm 69, 25. It says, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. And in Psalm 109, 8, it says, may his days be few and may another take his office. So even the early apostles recognized the authority and the importance of the scripture. And they recognized these things had to be fulfilled. So in verse 21 through 22, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So since the, the scripture must be fulfilled, Peter shares that someone who had been there since day one needed to step up and fill the position that was left vacant by Judas. And Peter uses this language here, must become, right? He says, listen, one of these men must become with us to witness the resurrection because it was a necessity. This was scripture that had to be fulfilled. This wasn't, this wasn't like, you know, it's probably a good idea that we round out our numbers again, but this, this was a necessity, the apostles who were to be witness to the resurrection were to be 12, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus didn't say that because he knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that he wouldn't be numbered among the 12 at some point. So he wasn't thinking one of you guys are going to have to lay across two thrones to, to fill this out. There had to be 12. There was, uh, the, the, this was symbolic of the 12 tribes. So they had to pick somebody to fill that space. Now, if you think about this for a second, you might go, well, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne. At some point, the other 11, they're going to die. Does that mean that there always has to be this rotating infilling of, of the 12 apostles? And as, as we know, you, we, we know the other, the, the other apostles die, and there's never once again it mentioned that those positions are refilled. And it's likely that the replacement was necessary here because unlike living out your purpose as an apostle like the other 11 did, and, and really the 12 once they, they picked the new one, Judas abdicated his position. He basically abandoned his position. There was no fulfillment of it, so that position needed to be filled. And that's why Peter says, listen, they must become with us. 
because it wasn't an option. This had to happen to fulfill the words of Jesus and ensure that the 12 tribes were represented. Amen. So in, in verses 23 to 25, it says, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they picked two fully qualified men. Right, Peter laid out the qualifications and they found two guys that met it. They were there from the baptism of John all the way up through the resurrection. They walked with Jesus. So they put forward these two qualified men, but they don't know which one to pick. So they begin to pray. First step you need to do when you don't know what to do is pray. Amen. So they begin to pray and they want to know which one God had chosen. So like I said, we all, we can always learn from the scripture in the early church. If you don't know what to do. It's always a good idea idea, facing any decision to pray. And then we'll end here in verse 26. It says, and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So finally, they, <laughs> so sometimes I type too fast. And in my notes, it says they cast logs to determine who God had chosen. <laughs> they had a <laughs> You ever seen those uh, competitions on YouTube where they're like cutting logs and throwing logs and, and putting them in the water and trying to stay on top of the log as it spins? That's basically what happened here. So finally, <laughs> after they had prayed, they cast lots to determine who God had chosen. Now, if you're like me, you might be wondering, what is this all about? Because it's obvious that God made Paul an apostle, right? Right. Not only was he an apostle, but he is probably the most prominent apostle. We have the most writings from him that are considered canon scripture. Why isn't Paul the 12th apostle? Like, did they make a mistake? Like, like, yeah, this position had to be filled, but should they, should they have maybe waited to see that uh, God wanted to use Paul? And uh, I don't have all the answers, but I can share this much with you. First... The required 12 is defined in Matthew 19, right, when Jesus was talking about it, was, was, was Jewish in its orientation. And in other words, the 12 apostles that would fill these positions were to be witnesses to the Jews, right? And that, that Matthew 19, 28 again was Jesus saying, truly I said to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is obvious the Jewish in nature, talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you know, Paul's ministry was, was primarily directed at the Gentiles. So that's one argument that's been offered up is that the reason why we needed Matthias is because uh, that was directed towards Jewish ministry, and, and Paul actually is focused on the Gentile ministry. Um, also, we'll find out as we continue to read in the book of Acts, one, if you don't know, Luke was, was one of Paul's friends. So Luke knew Paul and traveled with him um, at some points. And uh, he referred to the 12 apostles as the 12. So you can look in Acts 2.14, and it says Peter and the other 11. And that one and in Acts 6.12, it refers to them as the 12. So if, if Luke was confused or, or thought that, oh, they made a mistake, Paul should have been the 12th apostle, he probably wouldn't have referred 
to the others as the 12 and then Paul separately. Because, right, we're going to learn a lot about Paul in the book of Acts. So Paul was every bit an apostle. And and we don't have to say, well, maybe Paul's not an apostle because there's only supposed to be 12. Because if you read his letters, he argues quite convincingly that he is an apostle with every right and privilege that the apostles have. But it does appear that he wasn't the one that was intended to fill Judas's spot. Turns out that was Matthias, just how it played out, wouldn't you know? But let's get back to the lots. Anybody know what lots is? Basically what they did is they wrote Matthias and the other guy's name on a rock, put it in a, in a, in a jug and played Yahtzee with it, rolled it out, and the first one that rolled out was the one that was picked. And uh, I don't know, I've always thought this this was kind of a weird thing. It seemed like this was some gambling or something. I don't know. It seemed kind of odd how this, this worked out. But uh, uh, this practice actually comes from the book of Psalms, more than likely, or sorry, book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So it seems they did have some biblical uh, uh, direction as to why they did things this way. However, we should consider how this practice is done here so that we can understand that it doesn't mean that you and I should go around flipping coins to see what God's will is. God, do you want me to do this? Ding! Heads yes, tails no. That's that's not what we're to be doing. That's not the point. Matter of fact, um, this is actually the last time this practice is mentioned in the New Testament. You want to know what's different after this time and what's coming? The Holy Spirit came. You see, we don't need to flip coins to know what the will of God is. One, we have access to his throne. We can just ask him directly and we know he'll answer us. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us as well. He is our God, our guide, and our God. And, and we can pray and speak directly to God. So the, the necessity of some sort of intermediary practice to hear from God is no longer necessary for all of those of us who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? We have direct access. We can just pray. And we know that he hears us. And we know, and if we know that he hears us, we know that he'll answer us. Amen? So as we wrap up here, though, the lot fell to Matthias, and he became the 12th apostle, fulfilling scripture as they picked out a new one. And that position that was abdicated by, by Judas, that uh, uh, was now vacant, is now filled. The 12 apostles are whole once again. Amen.